Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin, and I have two guests with me here today. One you will only see if you're watching the YouTube version of this, and trust me, he's worth it. Uh, He's very tiny and super cute, but the one you're going to hear is Dr. Lynn Hendricks. Dr. Lynn, welcome to Central Line, and thank you for bringing your little buddy with you, who I understand is named Pluto. Yes, he's my new kitten. And thank you, Katie, for having me on today. I'm very excited to be talking with you and being attacked by a cat. (laughs) Yes. So if you hear Lynn involuntarily scream, um, it's because she's holding a kitten. We all know how that is. And it's totally worth it because he is so stinking cute. It's too bad. He's real so dark that you can't really see him that well on the video. But when she holds him up, he's just like this little nugget scrab in her hand. Um, He's very, very cute. And we're actually recording this on National Black Cat Appreciation Day, so I think it's only fitting. Absolutely. Anyway, um, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get started, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself and how you came to be here? So I um, was an emergency doctor, kind of straight out of school, um, and I uh, did that for about 10 years. And Um, My last job was less than ideal, Um, and that sort of made me think about something that I wanted to do differently, leave the profession, you know, etc. And uh, I ended up deciding to start my own business, Um, and I started as a general practitioner. I had a business partner. We kind of did that for about eight months and then she decided that it wasn't for her and um and we uh sort of went our separate ways um and then I kind of focused on what I'm focused on now and that's end-of-life care um I started having an interest in end-of-life care in uh 2000, no, 1993, when my mom passed away, um, and uh, it was my first experience with death and hospice, and um, really uh, kind of thought that at the time I was a vet tech, and I thought, we're not really doing death right for our patients. Really, it became about, um, uh, you know, how can we do this better? How can How can we... Um, sort of bridge that gap between, oh, your animal has a terminal illness, your pet has a terminal illness, and euthanasia. Um, because I saw so often, especially as a tech, um, you know, I, people would drop them off at that time. And so I was trying to get into vet school, um, and I was a tech, and I thought <laughs> I would, um, you know, develop a, a business plan. Uh, before vet school as a tech to do hospice-like care. And then I got into vet school. (laughs) And then I went into emergency medicine. (laughs) So uh, at that point, I really um, kind of diverted my attention. And since then, I have, you know, I got involved with the IHHPC. I was one of the co-authors of guidelines. So you've definitely carved out a niche for yourself in... Definitely in this industry and that that's great because it's 
that niche is really growing now, as I understand. You know, it seems like um, we're paying more and more attention to end-of-life care, and also people in the industry are starting to realize that it can be a completely different way to use our skills in education. Um, and I love that, you know, anything that we can do to increase that diverse career diversity in the profession um, and do right by our patients is, is good. Good idea. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, you know, that, that it's that whole bridging the gap, mm-hmm. the gap of knowledge, the, the gap of education, um, and that, and that gap of communication skills around yeah. uh, end of life care. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And we are going to be talking about that today a lot because that's why, you know, that's why we're speaking today. I really, you know, I want to hear a little bit more about the book you have that's coming out and also talk about how what you specialize in connects with what we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is how veterinary teams can work together. <laughs> Little man is very sassy. <laughs> um, he has a, a, a strong opinion, yes. Yes, he has a little toot there. That's good. Yeah, the tinier they are, man, the angrier that little meow. Um, but, uh, you know, we, I think, can see a lot, can learn a lot of lessons from um, all the work that you've done in end of life and, and palliative care. And But before we do that, I wanted to ask you a question because I would always like to get to know our guests a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, if you were a breed of dog or cat, let's yes. be inclusive here, um, what breed would you be? So I've, it, whenever we talk, whenever I get this question, <laughs> I always talk about um, being a pit bull um, because I can grab onto something and hang on. <laughs> for dear life and I don't back down from a fight um, so uh, I, I definitely have that pit bull slash velociraptor um, in me um, so uh, your mix pit bull mix I, I, a little bit but I, I mean I also, uh, obviously love cats um, and uh, as an introvert I really feel more cat like than than dog-like um you know i like to hang out at home i like to nap um sitting in the sun is great <laughs> even if I'm, <laughs> I'm all black um and it's 110 degrees outside because i'm in california um and uh you know and i have a particular affinity for black cats obviously i have two of them um one a teeny beanie bean and <laughs> um he's about four weeks and the other one is his big brother who hates his guts <laughs> at this point. For now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they are both very opinionated um, little cats, big cats, one little, one big. Um, uh, though I, I feel like, even though I might share that with them as well, I am more open-minded maybe than they are. <laughs> You have a little more life experience under your belt, too. I could help. And, you know, your livelihood depends on being diplomatic sometimes, probably. So (laughs) they could just get away with saying whatever they want, which (laughs) must be a nice gift. But, yeah, for those of you listening who aren't watching, um, Lynn is bottle feeding Pluto right now. This is such a typical vet moment here. It's like, (laughs) yeah, we can multitask. It's totally fine. Just bottle feed this kitten. It's like the only time he's going to be quiet, probably. Uh, (laughs) Well, I like that. And I've met many, many pit bulls who um, probably wanted less to do with me. Um, But 
love being at home and love their people. And so yeah. I think you could be introverted and still be a pit bull. For sure. Um, but they, man, I love those dogs. So <laughs> anyway, um, okay, well, so let's let's hear about your book. You yeah. said you were asked to write a book. Um, when does it come out? <laughs> you know. And what's it about? Uh, so um, is the title of the book is Animal Hospice and Palliative Medicine for the House Call Vet. Veterinarian. It's a really long title, I know. Um, the publisher had some keywords that they wanted to for me to use. You gotta have the SEO. And then, uh, and then I added palliative medicine because you know it wasn't long enough um, <laughs> for a title. Oh, he's almost out, um, <laughs> which means he had a good meal. Um, so, uh, you know, in all seriousness, veterinary palliative medicine has just become my passion. Um, again, bridging that gap. You know, I, I really think that um, it helps bridge a gap uh, between diagnosis and death, like I said before. Um, and it, so often, and I, one of the reasons I wrote it is because so often I hear that, you know, from students and from uh, colleagues um, that they don't really feel prepared for those conversations coming out of vet school or, or uh, for uh, the conversations even out in practice. You know, you, I'm sure older vets are probably more practiced at it because they've been, you know, they have more life experience, as you say. Um, <laughs> so, um, but really, we none of us really had... Uh, um, education around end-of-life right. care. I mean, euthanasia was uh, on-the-job training skill. Yeah. Right? You never got that in vet school, or if you did, it was rare, and, um, you know, you probably weren't in on some of the conversations that the resident or the faculty member had with the client, and, um, you know, I know uh, at UC Davis, they do do education now where they bring in actors and, and they have some better education around um, conversations around euthanasia, but they're still not doing a lot of conversations about, you know, what happens if the client says, mm, I don't really see what you're seeing, or mm -hmm. I don't really think that it's time for euthanasia, my dog's still eating, you know, or I don't really think they're in pain how can you convince me otherwise, right? And we all we all call that denial, but it's not really denial. It's just a different perception of what's going on. So, uh, and I think we need better tools um, mm -hmm. than we currently have too. Um, I've just found as I built my business that we didn't, I don't really like quality, a lot of the quality of life tools that we have because they're general and basic um, and the questions that we get around euthanasia are not general and basic they're deep and emotional and um, and meaningful so uh, you know and there's not just one party involved <laughs> there's multiple right. parties involved right. so um, so uh, you know other things um, that I think could be used for uh, every veterinarian um, around it is the end of other end of life stuff so symptom and disease management pain management euthanasia palliated death um, physical medicine uh, and then um, there's a bit on team building and uh, you know for end of life 
practices. So um, I think teams are essential, um, not ne- not necessary to start. Um, I started by myself, uh, and so I didn't have you know, the team that I have. (laughs) The reason I can sit here is because I have a team (laughs) Um, (laughs) out there working for me right now. Um, But, uh, you know, and and there's still more that we could do uh, for my business. So um, I I think there's lots of ways to build a team around end-of-life care. So what do you think that veterinary teams in general, like, because we... I remember you saying something when we first talked, um, you know, you said we all practice end of life care. So, you know, what you, you just, you have done it in such a specialized way and really, um, in this book broadened our own knowledge of how end of life care can and should be practiced. Um, but what can veterinary teams in general learn from a book or, you know, life lessons from somebody who's been working in this, this area of veterinary medicine for so long. So um, lessons uh, in the book, Um, you know, basically, when I wrote about the teams, I started with, you know, who's on the team, Um, veterinary technicians, mental health professionals, groomers, pet sitters, compounding pharmacies, regular pharmacies, online pharmacies. I mean, you know, there's a plethora of spiritual leaders, um, religious folks who can help people. So really, you know, the t- your team can be quite large and it can revolve around anything, anybody who can help um, the individual family and their pet. Um, and so a lot of it is, you know, individualizing that. Not only that, but, you know, crisis hotlines, pet loss support hotlines, and, and mental health professionals for those who need additional support um, in bereavement. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that we don't really talk about as as far as palliative medicine, but there's bereavement after an, a loss, any loss. Um, but often with animals, it's disenfranchised grief, meaning that we don't have, um, you know, a lot of support in necessarily our community, you know, mm-hmm. That's true. things like, uh, you know, oh, it's just a dog. Why are you still grieving? It's been three days, you know, I mean, those kind of commentary yeah. that people often get. Um, and so uh, really, um, it is, you know, building building out that team. And when I started, that's what I did. I just found people in my community that could help support um, my clients so that they could uh, really, you know, develop that uh, for them uh, as the individual and, and me so that I didn't feel like I had to take on everything, um, yeah. which veterinarians tend to like to do. <laughs> we tend to like to do everything. So you wouldn't have um, to take it all on yourself because veterinarians right. do that. Yes, very. We, we, you know, I have a degree in psychology, um, and I can handle a lot of issues that come up around um, end of life, you know, care and, and with clients, and um, but not every veterinarian even has that. Um, most do not, <laughs> so that's, you know, that's 
I know I have colleagues that do, but you know that that's not a, a common thing for veterinarians. In fact, one of the things I hear a lot about on Venn and other places I do consulting is, you know, how could we, you know, learn more about the psychology around end of life care? So, mm-hmm. um, so there's there's starting to be programs around that. There, this is really a, a growing, growing field because. Just like in human medicine 50 years ago, when they started, you know, it was a, a nurse, Cicely Saunders, who started um, thinking, you know, this end-of-life care that we're doing for humans, it's not great. They, they developed nursing, hospice nursing care, mm-hmm. um, I think, before they developed medical doctor palliative care, or really palliative medicine. Um, palliative medicine here in this country has uh, only been around since 2006. The a specialty in, in palliative medicine, and it's for a sub humans. for humans. It's yeah. a subspecialty for humans, and they um, so they're a specialist in in another field, oncology, internal medicine, etc. Um, Jennifer Tamel, who wrote. Temel, it's Timmel. Um, <laughs> I've been calling her for Jennifer Timmel for years, <laughs> but it's Timmel. I just heard her talk on a podcast. Um, wrote uh, one of the um, papers that changed the world of palliative medicine for humans, uh, and where she found that going into palliative care early actually helped the quality of life of the person, but it also extended their life. So, um, which makes sense. I mean, we know stress, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, influences pain, pain influences stress, and it's a vicious cycle and circle. Um, so, I, uh, you know, I, really the book for team members um, can help them, you know, learn those some of those skills or take some of the skills and, and help them develop those skills a little further uh, to um, being able to do end-of-life care. There, uh, There's very little education out there for team members um, mm-hmm. right now. Uh, there is a certification program for registered veterinary technicians here in the country. And I would recommend, if you're really very passionate about this, to go and look at a human hospice uh, volunteer education, go and, and, you know, develop um, nursing, you know, look at their nursing education, because I think that's really, you can go to human um, palliative care um, conferences and things so there's there's a lot more out there and that's one of the things that I did with this book was I looked at what are they doing in human medicine how can we translate that to veterinary medicine so one of the things that you were talking about um, at the beginning there was you know how the team for you especially starting out when it was just you yeah. you know a team didn't mean you and your veterinary technician and your veterinary assistant and your CSR it meant everybody involved in taking care of that pet. So that could be all the family members that may not even live with that pet. That could be a groomer or a 
close friend who's advising or the person at the, you know, the pet sitter that comes in once a day and sees things the owner may not see, stuff like that. And we don't always think about that in general practice. And I think that's a really big lesson for us is that the healthcare team of that pet in the eyes of of the people who live with the pet mm-hmm. is so much larger than mm-hmm. just the very insular world of our hospital. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, you know, how do you handle relationships with those, with all of those team members when you don't get to talk to them directly? Like, how do you handle what the pet sitter is saying to the client or how the client interprets what they hear at the groomer or whatever? So... I do check-ins with clients, um, and that may be daily, maybe weekly, maybe monthly, maybe biweekly. You know, it just depends on the disease process and and what their needs are, um, because they they are directing this care to some extent. Um, and uh, and so when we check in with them, we find out. You know, we try to ask those kind of questions: what's what's been going on? You know. It, or they will convey, hey, my groomer said my dog has an ear infection, right? They always <laughs> find yep. the ear infections for us. Um, yeah, the smelly <laughs> ear with the stuff coming out of it, like, suddenly right. becomes apparent at the groomer. Right. So, um, <laughs> so it, you know, they they often will convey that, that information. Um, I also, when I was building my outside team, uh, when it was just me, the individual veterinarian and I I would interview people um, and see if I wanted to refer to them or not. Now I can't stop my clients from seeing other people but if I had people that I could refer to that I felt comfortable that they were on the same kind of page um, then I could uh, feel comfortable of them going in. I mean I had one pet sitting company that were fantastic. They would go in and they would call me immediately if there was something going on with the dog or cat. This AHA podcast is brought to you by CareCredit. CareCredit understands you're busier today than perhaps ever before. To help free up your time, the CareCredit Health and Pet Care Credit Card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere. They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved all on their own smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs. And you get a few more minutes to take care of patients, take care of business, and take care of yourself. Great. So you you really made an effort to connect with them and to make sure that even if you didn't have direct interactions with them, that you kind of knew what was going on and what the clients were hearing or experiencing with other people. Yeah. Um, and that that's a very big lesson to me because you know we're so dismissive i think in general practice of those people we think well the groomer can't possibly know more than us and the pet sitter you know probably isn't saying what we would say and so we want the client to just listen to us and that's a that's never going to happen <laughs> right <laughs> like we're never going to be the only voice in that client's ear but b you know, we really do discount, I think, sometimes what other people in other environments can see. And especially if that pet is, is in a different state of mind when they see that person, mm-hmm. or the client is I, in a different state of mind when they talk to that person, they might know something right. we don't. Right. Well, I 
you know, the client knows their pet best mm -hmm. because they live with them, right? Mm -hmm. And so most of the people that I would go and visit, do a consultation with, we would, I would set them up with tools, you know, here's what you're looking for, for this particular disease. What do you understand about the disease? Let's talk about that for a little bit and, and, um, and really start setting them up for, uh, at least initially it was, here's when you need to call me, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and I actually have star, star, star. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a list uh, that I developed of distress points, right? Everybody says every client in 11 years plus years has said to me, I don't want them to suffer. Every single one of them. Nobody has raised their hand and said, can I please sign my animal up for the suffering plan and not the non-suffering plan, right? They all yeah. want them not to suffer. But if I just walk away and say, well, call me when they are, um, which is one of the things I heard a lot, um, mm -hmm. especially 10 years ago, um, you know, that my, my vet said, call me when they're suffering, but I don't really know what that means. Um, you know, I still see them eating, I still see them doing things, you know, like, what does it mean? So I started developing tools just around that. Um, what does that mean? You know, and then it was really, how can I get you to call me if you're seeing things I want you to look for? Um, so mm -hmm. I have, I have a paper white sheet that is just signs of distress. So if your animal's in distress, then, you know, we need to have a call. It may not be the end of that animal's life. Maybe we just need to adjust meds, right? Maybe they just had a flare right. up of pain or whatever, but I want you to call me so we can have that conversation. Yeah. Um, now that I have a team, you know, we still utilize that because I want them to call in and say, hey, I'm seeing this thing, The you know, um, now I've turned it into a checklist. So, uh, Oh, we you love know. checklists. Yes, they they know know what you know. What's a crisis? What mm -hmm. are these a crisis moment? Um, and and the other aspect of that is developing that tool so that people start making their red lines in the sand. Right? When am I going to make this decision? Yeah. Well, I don't want them to have what I call brain distress or seizures. You know, it's one of the things on the list of brain distress. So I don't want to see, they, they've had one seizure. I don't want to see another seizure. Can we put them on anti-seizure medication? Or are you done, you know, are you at a stopping point now? So that's the kind of thing that um, I really started developing. One of the other tools that really was very helpful for me and now that I have a team um, for other, other people is an advanced directive. Mm -hmm. um, and I made it. I mean, human advanced directives are all about the legal aspect of the end of life care. So I don't want to go into the hospital. I don't want to have, you know, I want to have a DNR. I, I don't, you know, it's that kind of stuff. To me, about advanced directives for pets was really about what do you want to see him or them be able to do? And what don't you want to see them have to go through? Um, but... As I said earlier, quality of life skills to me are too basic because it just focuses on the animal and it doesn't focus on the whole picture. Um, and really, end of life care, we 
tend to focus on the whole picture, not only the animal, but what's going on in the home. You know, Mm -hmm. how's the home arranged? How can we make that better for the animal? Um, What's going on with the family? Right. Yeah. If they have little kids um, and their focus is on the little kids, is it really fair to the animal to, you know, sit there and have a seizure while they're like feeding the baby, you know, right. and they can't really, you know, then they're, they're pulled both directions. So developing those tools, um, not only to focus on the pet, but to focus on the family. What do you want to go through? What do you want? What do you not want to have to go through? Um, and then and then those legal issues do you want to do a dental do you want to do uh you know put them on a ventilator do you want to you know take them to the hospital and and have them do cpr um so you know developing that those kind of tools for people um really uh, i i think is significant and important and you know I didn't put my proprietary information in the book, but I did develop other checklists. Um, You know, how can you... I actually have a a really long checklist about dealing with the team Um, and, uh, you know, dealing with the pet, dealing with, you know, your team and dealing with the client Um, because the client, the animal, and whether it's you or multiple people, those are all your team members. Right. Um, it's, it also includes, you know, their general practitioner veterinarian. It also includes specialists that they go and see. Um, and one of the di- big differences between palliative medicine and, and animal hospice is that palliative medicine can be done anytime. Right. We, you can have a dog seeing the oncologist and still have a palliative medicine person on your side. We're there to support. We're there to build um, that relationship. We're there to take over as the curative medicine starts backing away. You know, I, I do feel like this is, it takes your area of veterinary medicine, takes things that we consider more, more like soft skills a lot of times in general practice, the things we are most likely to brush off when we're busy or when we're not getting along super well with a client or having a bad day. And we kind of like push them to the side and we're like, well, at least we're prescribing the medication or we're doing the surgery or we're just like getting the stuff done that's going to fix this pet. But what you're describing is how important those skills are and really central to what you do and what your team does. But they really, they're, so much of what we talk about on this podcast is communication. You know, we don't talk about the medicine very much on this podcast. This is a non-clinical show. Yeah. And yeah. it's because the communication to me, like I hate, I hate it when people call it a soft skill because it's the hardest thing that there is to do uh, well, Yeah, but also so central to delivering that great care, whether it's, just making sure that a person is comfortable with the decision to do nothing and to wait or to do everything, you know? So I, I, I like to say, um, do nothing is, is not what we do. Um, I actually was writing a lecture one time and I, I wrote the words, you know, we're so good at medicine that we don't know when to stop intervening Mm-hmm. And then I realized, but I'm still intervening. Mm-hmm. 
intervening. It depends how you how you define intervening, right? <laughs> well, it it's it's a shift in thinking. Yeah. So it's it's a shift in thinking. I'm here to cure this animal, mm-hmm. um, and and shifting it to I'm here to comfort that animal. We still, I mean, most of medicine provides comfort. Right, it it provides comfort in that we're curing something that is making an animal or a person ill in medicine, and so um, you know it's it's really just a shift in thinking, but it's it's hard I think for for most of my colleagues out there who are practicing general medicine or even most of my colleagues who are out there doing um, specialty medicine. Uh, when you're in practice and you're seeing patients, whether it's 15, 10, 15, 30 minute appointments, it's not enough time. You have enough time to focus on the animal and get in and get out and and, and be done with that. Um, and you can't, it's hard to build a good relationship with any human if you've spent 15 minutes. It's like speed dating. Um, yeah. You can't, you're not really learning a lot about that person in that right. period of time. Right. Um, and so when I go to a consultation, it's three hours. Yeah. You know, and that's not something that, like, I say that to people and they go, I don't have time to do that. Like, <laughs> I, I go, well, you charge for it. You know, yeah. you you make the, that time. Um, I actually had I talked to a veterinarian in somewhere in Eastern Europe. I want to say Estonia, but I could be wrong. And if you're listening, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, but we we had a conversation one time about a case that she had, and um, and I said, you know, this is really. You, at least a two-hour conversation that you need to have with these people um, if you're going to, you know, present them with everything that they need. Um, and she told me after she had the appointment that she did take two hours, that she charged them for it, that they were incredibly grateful, um, which is what I find is people are incredibly grateful and overwhelmed uh, often in three hours because it's a lot of time. Um, but I leave also a booklet of information so they can go back and review it, yeah. um, which they do. I, so, Well, I'm thinking about behavior consults at the university vet school, you know, it wasn't uncommon for a behavior consult to come and stay three hours because they'd go through students and residents and maybe an attending veterinarian and we'd observe and there'd be questionnaires and there'd be follow-up and then we'd have to write the discharge statement. And I mean, that it was like an afternoon, full afternoon. And it, you know, that was, then they had to come in to do it. And so for you to come to someone's house and try to understand how their life works and what their goals are for this pet that they love so much when they're probably feeling a whole lot of conflicting emotions too at the same time. Uh, three hours to me seems like that that is a reasonable ask, you know, for mm-hmm. trying to get the lay of the land in that way and be able to help them the best you can. But you're right, that's not something we can do in general practice. Um, but We could. We could. <laughs> we we could. Um, I think right now it, most of the people who are turning people away, you know, because they're so overbooked, would say that now is not a great time to start instituting that unless you have somebody fair. who's just doing that. But yeah, we could. I mean, and and it, we used to say we couldn't do thirty minute appointments, and now that's right. standard in many many hospitals. Right. So right, um, right. you just you never know what 
will end up speaking to you and be the right fit for your hospital and team and clients. But yeah. I speaking, I wanted to ask you one more question, um, Lynn, yeah. which is, you know, you were talking a lot about support as, uh, you know, end of life palliative medicine provider. You are very used to giving support to pet owners and to the pets and to all the people around them. How, do you see parallels between how you provide that support to these people and these pets and how we could support our veterinary teams in general practice? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, I think that, uh, you know, out of all the questions, I think this is more significant um, because we, we don't always see that um, in, in general practice. In fact, uh, oftentimes, um, you know, we see the opposite. You know, we're overwhelmed and they're overwhelmed yeah. and we yeah. don't know how to to build that support. Um, you know, I, I, I see palliative medicine as really not only about supporting people um, and the pet, comforting them and connecting with them. So it's not just about the support, it's about the connection that we build. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, a connection that we can't do in 10 minutes. <laughs> Again. Yeah. And um, we can't do you know, this- at a five minute, you know, pizza break in the break room <laughs> on a busy right. day, right? <laughs> right. It's, it, it's, you know, in palliative medicine, we're emotionally psychologically, physically, and spiritually supporting these people. Um, and we don't have to do all that. We can build a team. <laughs> uh, just in case you're feeling like, oh, God, Lynn just said I have to do all of those things. You don't. Um, you do. You come at it from who you are and, um, and where you're at in the moment, um, and you build from there. And, uh, you know, I think basically meeting people where they are um, is also my tagline uh, for my business. We meet people where they are, and that, of course, has two meanings, um, but also meeting them for who they are in the moment. Mm. And I think that if we can do that for our team members, um, you know, that is going to build a team better um, and stronger than maybe we currently have. So, um, you know, I think in veterinary medicine, we have some unique stressors. Um, we have mental health issues that we're starting to deal with, but, you know, haven't really delved into a lot. Um, we have a system that tends to set us up for being overwhelmed and for failure, um, and, uh, you know, it, we often or sometimes develop into an adversarial relationship with clients um, and, and with team members. And yeah. <laughs> I feel like, you know, we could take some of that and back off and, be, and do better. And I'll give you an example of, of what I, how I've grown, how I've shifted my thinking. Because I came from emergency medicine, which is probably one of the highest stress fields um, that we have because we're just going, 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 right? We got to always go. Um, and I 
came out of that and went into doing what I do now, which I purposefully started shifting how I thought about um, what I did on a daily basis. But I still had the system built in, right? I still had, you know, my all the mentors, all the people I dealt with ever uh, through the years, um, you know, the you know, just how the medical system is built that you got to see every single person that comes your way yeah. that you have to, you know, I, I, when we were writing guidelines, we talked about writing them for being available 24 seven, which I was so strongly against because I was an individual practitioner, me personally. And I knew that at the time, especially in 2013, when we, we wrote and published them, um, most veterinarians who were doing this work were solo practitioners. Um, and that's still probably the case, you know, almost 10 years later, uh, is that, you know, the vast majority maybe have one team member that, that can help them, but, you know, they're not a big giant team. Um, right. And so shifting my thinking of, I don't have to take on every case, um, you know, People have other options. I uh, I know things have changed uh, in in vet med since the pandemic, and you know, going curbside and all of that. Um, but really, shifting what really shifted one of my big shifts was I was having lunch with one of my colleagues in the area who does does what I do, and she said to me, "Yeah, I I only take on." like one or two cases a day because that's what I want to do and it was like mind-blowing <laughs> like I don't have to take on every case that like I don't have to work all of those hours like I was going out at nine o'clock at night I was trying to be 24 7 because we had this conversation and you know that stuck with me mm-hmm. um, and now I'm an advocate I'm like you don't have to be 24-7 in order to be a, gen- a hospice or a palliative practitioner you do not have to do that as a solo person you know who does that teams teams yeah. of humans in human medicine That's you right. know, and they're a big team and you need a team um, yeah. you the individual do not have to be on 24-7 and you know please put that out everywhere. Um, <laughs> you know. That's your billboard. That's your tweet to the profession. <laughs> we, we, we cannot be available 24-7 yeah. as well, practitioners. We just and I think sometimes we get stuck in thinking about those sort of, you know, the James Harriet picture of yeah. like, you know, this is what being a vet is, is being available 24-7. Well, people didn't have cell phones then, and they you know, it was, it was harder. Like you had to really want to get a hold of your veterinarian at 3am. And I think now we forget how easy it is for people to reach us Mm -hmm. and um, how, you know, sort of easy we make it for them Mm -hmm. to reach us sometimes. So I really like that message. And I think, you know, even if that means you can't help everyone it means you're helping yourself and in the long run you're going to do a lot more damage to yourself and to those around you if you're trying to do it all yourself because I almost didn't become a vet because the horse vet the equine vet that I was riding along with my senior year of high school you know I'd wanted to be a vet for years I was that kid you know Mm -hmm. and the equine vet that I rode along with my senior year of high school hated her life Um, she had just taken on 
an associate for the first time, but she'd been on call solo for like 20 years. And she was so burned out and, and just, she basically talked me out of it. I didn't, I was an art history major because of her. grateful for now it was a great great time but like you know I I was like wow this is really hard you know and that really makes me sad because she could have had help you know and she or she could have at least not taken on quite so much and now that would be acceptable and then it wasn't Um, she felt like that's what she had to do absolutely I I mean one of the one of the things that I advocate for with uh, the profession is to set boundaries to take care of yourself easier said than done you know i can i can go around and go well you just need to set boundaries but you know if i don't give people practical skills on how to do that um then then it's just lip service right we we can say it all we want to um what we really need to do is work on that shift of thinking yeah you know in our own selves Mm -hmm. i mean another thing that happened to me um, to shift my thinking was my daughter was little at the time and she's I was dropping her off you know to go to an appointment at a friend's house and she said why don't you want to spend any time with me oh oh heart gut punch breaking you know I might tear up now just thinking about it because that was not my goal at all my goal yeah. was to be for therefore her, her um and and uh, yeah. to not so um so i you know i did things for me to start scheduling myself time to be just me put it on my schedule yeah <laughs> Yeah, you got to do that. Blocked out time. And and then I had to get in my own head and Mm -hmm. say, um, you know, because people will call. People Mm -hmm. will call and they'll say, I want you there 24-7. And uh, I got the the words, my next available appointment is (laughs) down. Um, (laughs) Because my next available appointment, it didn't matter if I was sitting in my bed eating bonbons, watching a movie. Um, It didn't matter if I was hanging out with my daughter at a school play. You know, it it didn't matter what I was scheduled for. I was scheduled. Yep. And I had to get there in my own head. And that's that's the key, really, um, for each individual is that we have to develop whatever tool works for us. Um, but that's those were one of the things that I, uh, you know, that I did for me was to just develop those tools so that I stopped, um, you know, scheduling myself, uh, you know, during times that were important to me, because that just takes away from who you are. Yeah. It 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 starts pulling pieces of your heart out, your heartstrings out, um, yeah. and nobody. I mean, one of the things that I've learned working around death and dying and reading about death and dying and all those books behind me are about death and dying. There's more on the other side. Um, (laughs) I just sit around and read about it all day long. But one of the things that I have learned being around death is about life. Nobody goes to their deathbed saying, gosh darn, I wish I made more money. Gosh darn, I wish I had, um, you know, spent more time at work. Gosh darn, I wish I'd had saved that one 
last dog um, or cat or horse or spider or whatever <laughs> species they're seeing, they say, I wish I spent more time with friends and family. That's yeah. their big regret. I wish I had more time to travel. Big regret. I wish I had spent more time not working. Yeah. And if, you know, it's another gut punch to me is to, to realize that, you know, I could die at any moment. I drive around for a living. I mean, you know, car accidents, big, big cause of death, uh, especially for younger people. Uh, luckily, knock on wood, I haven't gotten into any problems. But, um, you know, I, I could have a heart attack. I could, I mean, things could happen. So if I want to live my life in the moment and I want to live my life um, for my family, I need to do things to create that and spend time with my family. Um, it was, it's not an easy journey and it's a constant journey. It's, it's, it's constant shift in thinking um, and how we can do better. Uh, and being overwhelmed, 100%. You can't get there if you're being overwhelmed all the time, and that—that's what I see now. Um, you know, the drive for corporations and money, the drive for, um, you know, trying to help every single pet who comes your way, uh, the drive to to do better. You know, those are all built-in things that we strive for, but those are not things that we'll go to our deathbed wishing we'd done. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I think that's a mic drop right there, you know, and I, I totally agree with you. Um, I don't think we can do any better than that. Honestly. Um, that's the essence of why, why we're talking today. Um, and yeah. I really think, you know, there's a, a message in there that our profession really needs to hear over and over and over again. Um, because that's my personal philosophy too. You know, I lost my mom very early, um, she was just a little older than I am now. And so I think my whole adult life, I've thought about that is what would it be like if this was, you know, if she had known that that was all the time she got. And so um, we have to we have to think first about ourselves and our families and what we really want to be saying at the end of that, wherever it might come. And I don't yeah. think that's morbid. I think it's hopeful and beautiful um, because it means you're not going to waste time doing things that aren't right for you. Um, then that maybe that could be hurting you in the long run. Right. Right. So. I mean, you know, we, we have to have money in order to survive. We have mm -hmm. to have, you know, basic care needs. So if you meet those, um, then you can start working on other things. Thank you for that. Um, I feel like somebody listening needed to hear that today. So thank, thank you. you for driving that home. Um, I hope somebody's like driving to the clinic, listening to this and thinking, okay, at least for today, I'm going to try to know where my boundaries are. <laughs> Lynn Hendricks, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Central Line. Thank you, um, I, we, I'll put some links in the show notes to, I know you um, are involved in a few different groups and um, also if there's a link to pre-order your book, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Okay. And uh, I hope everyone listening, you know, that you, if you want to know more about this subject, or if you want to learn more about some of the things Lynn talked about today, um, please do check out her book whenever it comes out. <laughs> we'll hope that's soon. Hopefully that's soon. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. Thank you, Lynn, again. And thank you all so much for listening. Thank you. We'll catch you next time on Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.